0: You know what's a great movie? Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Maybe not the film you thought I was going to say, but it's a classic. Paul Newman? Liz Taylor? The Snowman from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? How can you beat it? Okay, maybe it's not great, but it's still really, really good. The stage play is great, but there's something missing from the movie that even that fabulous cast of actors just can't fix. For those of you who are only familiar with the movie and not the play, allow me to clarify. Brick is super gay. He's a closeted homosexual whose true love committed suicide, and he's trapped in a heteronormative marriage with a whole lot of pressure to procreate. That's the entire cause of his despair, his alcoholism, his hatred of lies, and it's the driving force behind the whole story. But the film was made during the Hays Code, and depictions of homosexuality weren't allowed especially not in any sympathetic light, so instead we get Paul Newman not wanting to have sex with Elizabeth goddamn Taylor at the height of her having sex with wantability and drinking himself into an early grave because he's really sad he can't play the football no more. But at least Brick was a fictional character and not a real person getting his sexuality erased, and we can take some self-satisfied comfort in blaming it on the era in which it was made. That doesn't make it a lot better, but… This kind of straightwashing continued well after the Hollywood production code fell to the wayside, and even as recently as... I don't know, what time is it? Today's film isn't Hollywood's first attempt at telling the tale of the Bletchley Park codebreakers, cracking the German Enigma machine, and saving the world. But it is the first sincere attempt at giving Alan Turing his rightful acknowledgement for his contributions to the Allied victory, for his pioneering work in computers, or for the tragic end he met at the hands of the country he served. And that end is inextricably tied to his homosexuality. We don't have to guess how this story would have been told during the Hayes Code. We don't even have to go back that far to see Alan Turing get not just straightwashed, but entirely erased from his own story for the crime of being gay. That already happened just this century. It may be surprising to us today, but it shouldn't be. For all the progress we've made since Alan Turing's Day, or Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, or even from 2001, remember, he was only pardoned of that crime the year before this movie was released, after he'd been dead for 59 years. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. Would you like to play? It's a game, a test of sorts. For determining whether you're talking with a Marine veteran, a film critic, or a theater director. As we discuss 2014's Oscar winning World War II biopic and the second British period prestige picture in the Danger Close canon to co star Kira Knightley and Benedict Cumberbatch, The Imitation Game. <laughs>
1: Call it in. It's Danger Close. Welcome back to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And today we're here to talk about The Imitation Game, a 2014 British film. And Katie's here to tell us a little bit about it.
2: For decades, Alan Turing was a disgraced and mostly unknown historical figure. It's only since the 1980s, when previously top-secret historical documents began to be declassified, that the true story of his contributions to cryptography and the development of computers was revealed. In 2009, British programmer John Graham Cummings started a petition that the British government should apologize for their persecution of Turing. It took five more years of debate and parliamentary hearings for Queen Elizabeth to finally cut through the red tape and issue an official pardon. The Imitation Game was released in 2014 to general positive praise from critics and a decent take of $90 million, which is pretty good for a historical drama. It garnered three nominations at the Academy Awards, including Best Actor for Cumberbatch and Supporting Actress for Knightley, but it only ended up winning Best Screenplay for Graham Moore. This film isn't necessarily inaccurate, but it is a compressed and dramatized version of Turing's experiences, and we are definitely going to get into the truth versus film on this episode. But to start things off, what was your guys' knowledge of Alan Turing and World War II cryptography before this movie came out?
1: I think my absolute only knowledge of Turing was not even of Alan Turing. It was just of the Turing test before this came out embarrassingly, but that is the truth. And of course that comes from my relatively deep knowledge of science fiction or certainly my love of science fiction and the fact that I was talking about Blade Runner on a podcast a lot. So we got into a lot of that. And of course in Blade Runner, one of the more famous scenes at the beginning and shown in other parts of the film is the Voight-Kampff test, which is basically a type of Turing test. I mean, it's a machine devised to tell the difference based on emotional response between a replicant or an artificial person and a real person. The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't, not without your help, but you're not
0: helping. What do you mean I'm not helping? I mean, you're not helping. Why is that,
1: Leon. And so, conceptually, I was very aware of that test named after Alan Turing. They're just questions, Leon. In answer to your query, they're written down for me. It's a test
0: designed to provoke an emotional response.
1: As well as there's a scene that I'll talk about later that actually reminds me a lot of the scene for Blade Runner. So that was kind of my knowledge of Turing, and it was more based on science fiction and AI than anything else. So the first time I saw this, which was probably around the time it came out, maybe a little bit later, was the first time that I really learned a little bit more about the person himself.
2: Liam?
0: I knew very little. This was actually 2014 was an oddly big year for the Turing test in cinema especially around Oscar time, because Ex Machina also came out this same oh, yeah. year. And I remember I'd, ne- I'd actually, I'd not heard of the Turing test. Like my, my knowledge of science fiction is not anywhere close to yours, Dan, having delved so much into it over the years. I've been much more of a, of a casual observer. Okay. I heard of the Turing test from my friends who were fucking flipping out While watching both this movie and ex machina be like, it's the Turing test. They just, they just loved it. When they got to see Alan Turing, give the Turing test or, or participate in a Turing test. They were just like, this is amazing. (laughs) And so (laughs) I knew a little bit about the very, 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 very little about cryptography during world war II Because prior to this movie, I'd seen another film, which I'd like to talk about in a little bit. It was actually called Enigma from 2001, that was a pretty big Hollywood production. Like, it wasn't a blockbuster or anything, but it had Kate Winslet in it when she was a recognizable face and name.
2: Are you saying that Kate Winslet is not a recognizable face and name?
0: (laughs) After 1999? Is that Titanic? 97? No, I'm saying. I'm sorry, I I must have phrased that poorly. Yes! She was already a recognizable name by that point. It was still earlier in her career, but she'd done Titanic, but still this one seemed to fly under the radar for some reason.
2: Yeah, she's an even better actress now than she was then.
0: Exactly. No, I love Kate Winslet. She's fantastic. So, long story short, I knew very little about this story prior to watching this movie, and the information that I did have was bad.
2: So... I am an avid Neal Stephenson reader. I've talked about him on this podcast a little before. He writes historical fiction, but it is some of the best well-researched historical fiction out there. He wrote a book called Cryptonomicon in 1999, and it's a very complicated book, but a significant chunk of the story is set at Bletchley Park with a... He didn't actually exist, but then all the rest of the people there existed, type of situation.
0: Call that historical fiction.
2: In this regard, it was just one person who was made up. There aren't too many others. So he, you get a very interesting perspective on Alan Turing. And Stevenson can make even the most dull things at least slightly entertaining. So, and so ever since then, I've been fascinated with Alan Turing and with. Bletchley Park, code breaking, the art of cryptology, cryptography, all of these very difficult mathematical things that I'll tell you I could never do. I am not good at math, even though I'm an accountant. Great with data, bad with math. But I still find the ideas fascinating because it's like I can I can just like I can peek over the edge and kind of understand what they're talking about, but not really. Never enough to replicate it or really get it myself. And Turing's story is a horrific tragedy and it deserves to be remembered and he was such an interesting person that at least from everything i've read about him wasn't exactly how he's portrayed in this this is that was not my impression of turing because i watched this for the first time today and prep for the show because when i saw the trailer the trailer made really downplayed the whole he's a gay man aspect of it and i was like I'm not interested in seeing any movie that is not acknowledging of that, of his sexuality, mm-hmm. especially because it resulted in his death at 41. Right. Or
1: contributing factor at, at a very minute. I mean,
2: if, yeah, if none of that had happened, can we say he would have died at 41? Probably not. But we'll get into that, too, because there's questions about it.
1: And yeah, Liam, I never address Enigma in your question, not the film, but the actual machine and the concept. And I had heard of that just reading about World War II. So I was aware of the, you know, the German program and the machine and all that, which is a lot of what this film deals with. So let's get into a little bit of the history. Thanks to Richard Stevens for writing this one up, who's a one of our regular contributors. So thanks, Rich. During World War II, Germany used Enigma machines to encode and decipher communications. These machines were quite complex analog computers that substituted a letter type for a new letter automatically. The genius of the design allowed up to 13 direct substitutions using a plugboard in the front, and as a key is pressed, a lamp lights up on the display above the keys with the coded letter. As this happens, a series of rotors, between 3 and 8 depending on the version, will rotate and change the output letter with each key press. So, for example, I press the A key and the machine encodes it to a Q, I press A again and it encodes it to a Z, and so on and so on. Also, one thing to understand that's not shown too much in the film because it would just be what's called shoe leather in fiction, right? It's like just too much explanation of what's going on is these messages are being transmitted in Morse code and that Morse code is in German. So there are like several translations that have to happen here as well on top of the decryption. Right. You have to know Morse code and then you have to get that to someone who understands German in order to actually translate the message. To decode a message encrypt by Enigma, a corresponding Enigma machine will have to be set up with the correct rotors in order and rotor starting positions and plugboard settings. Thus, even if an enigma was captured by the enemy, as happened in May 1941, when the British destroyer Bulldog was able to capture a German U-Boat U-110 with an enigma intact, it was useless long-term without up-to-date codebooks detailing the settings, which changed daily. The Polish analysts were responsible for a lot of the early cracking of the system in 1931 and earlier systems, and their contribution is not even it's talked about briefly in this film, but it's definitely downplayed. Whereas it's without- mentioned
2: that they captured a machine.
1: The only mention that I heard of, of
0: anything Polish was that when he's designing his machine, he says it's based on an older Polish design, but it's much more advanced.
2: Okay. and
1: That is all true. Essentially what happened is when the Poles were working on intercepting German messages earlier in the thirties, They did not have a machine, they didn't capture an Enigma. So what they did is they they basically reverse-engineered it, deducting from the messages they were reading. And so they built their own version of an Enigma to then plug it in and decipher it. And at that time, it was much simpler. Polish cryptanalysts began working on cracking Enigma in the pre-war years. Commercial Enigma machines were available and a lot of progress was made. Polish analysts discovered that the military wiring was different than the commercial wiring, alphabetical as opposed to a standard keyboard layout, and built so-called Enigma doubles. They were able to crack the three-wheel Enigma using brute force techniques to run through possible combinations. However, this was only possible due to how the Enigma was being used at the time. A single indicator setting was used for all traffic on a network in a day, and the rotor order was only changed quarterly. By the start of the war, Germany had increased the number of rotors and was changing the rotor setting on a daily basis. Nevertheless, Poland shared this information with Britain and France as war became imminent, giving Bletchley Park a head start in their own efforts. So again, they built a lot of the foundation that this further work done by the British intelligence was based on. You hear uh, Bletchley Park mentioned a lot in here. I know Katie's going to talk about it. It was also known as Station X. And if you're interested in learning more about the history of the work that they did, there's a four-part, about 200-minute total documentary on YouTube from the BBC from 1999 called Station X. I watched most of it. It was very interesting, kind of lays out. Uh, You can see what was taken directly from history and what was changed in the film. So we see in the film that this program that British military intelligence started was called Ultra, and it was the most secret security designation that they had None of the people involved in this opened their mouths about any of it until the 1970s, so it was really locked up tight and they were sworn to secrecy. Even their families didn't know what they were doing. Breaking the Enigma code was an accomplishment, but using it was another problem. As we see in the film, if the Allies acted to counter every move they learned through Ultra sources, the Germans would soon ascertain that their codes had become compromised. As such, the information gleaned from Ultra was only used when it would have the most prominent effect. Various historians and politicians, including Churchill and Eisenhower, parentheses, Churchill we know, like his World War II history and stuff, was very prone to lying and embellishing for the sake of propaganda. So like when you read stuff from Churchill, you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. However, after the war, they asserted that ultra shortened the war by two to four years, possibly saving 14 million lives. I don't know that there's an accurate way to calculate that, but certainly this program in a way that is not shown in combat films and in like overt battles was something happening in the background that definitely helped shorten the war and was very much a victory for the allies ultra intelligence was used to great effect to route naval convoys around u-boat patrols after the capture of u-110 naval intelligence rerouted convoys and reduced shipping losses by two-thirds until the codebooks captured with the enigma machine they found ran out of date Breaking the Enigma along with other emergent technologies ensured the Allies won the Battle of the Atlantic and supplies could be stockpiled in England for the invasion of France. And if anyone is unfamiliar, the Battle of the Atlantic is kind of a hyperbolous name. It's not really a single battle. It's just the constant movement of shipping between the U.S., and North America, and Europe where we were giving supplies, etc. And the constant attacking of it by German U-boats. This can be seen most recently in the film Greyhound, if you want a good example of what they were dealing with. So that's what's considered the Battle of the Atlantic.
2: So the film itself, it tries to attain a certain level of realism, but it also is fine to discard that when it suits its purpose, while also blending that with a cinematic style. And watching it, I was like, this is a very tightened up version of what actually happened. In almost every scene, or in almost every section, rather, not even like out to the axe, but like where you see him as a boy, where you see him as an adult, and then where you see him interviewed by the police, so many things are wrong. But their are details. The overarching story is still trying to maintain some level of authenticity. Right. For instance, the childhood friend, he knew that kid for like eight years and Christopher died when he was 19. And for the rest of his life, Turing maintained a relationship with that kid's family. Him and the mom wrote letters back and forth throughout the rest of his life. So it's lots of weird little things like that, that I couldn't decide whether or not they took away my appreciation for the movie or if I could overlook them.
1: I couldn't help myself but notice that this film felt a lot like atonement and... I'm not making a negative comparison, because if you go back to our episode on Atonement, we kind of all crapped on that film in terms of the Oscar baitiness of it and the polish of it and what they were doing. So I like this film a lot more than that one, and I think it's a better made film. But I'm just talking about the glow of the cinematography and the general production design and the look reminded me a lot of Atonement. And I looked near and far for any connection in the staff, and I didn't find any other than Keira Knightley and... Benedict Cumberbatch himself, who were both in Atonement as well. But in terms of the staff and the production, I didn't see any overlap. Did you guys get that feeling at all? What did you think about the production design, the set dressing, all that stuff?
2: Have you seen The King's Speech? Yes. Because that also has these tones to it.
1: Yeah, like, you look at The King's Speech,
0: you look at this movie.
2: Shakespeare in Love has the same glow. Yes,
0: that's, I don't know, a, a little bit different in my mind. There's just so many movies of this ilk that, generally speaking, I love. I love these movies to death, except for Atonement. Atonement, <laughs> not so much.
2: Well, I th- I feel like that's Atonement's fault, honestly. Yeah,
0: I mean, that should have been right in my sweet spot, and it, it failed. It had
2: McAvoy in it. Mm-mm.
0: So many good things going for it. Failure. But so, you know how, like, if you want something to look old timey, you give it that sepia tone? Or if you. Like, especially after Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. a lot of World War Two combat footage stuff has that kind of gray, washed out kind of look to it. I think mm-hmm. there are certain films that create or establish a cinematic look for a time period that then that just codes the entire rest of the genre for a long time. Right. And I don't know what was the impetus for the british home front looking like this mm-hmm. but that's the kind of, this is like okay. that glow you're talking about strikes me as the british home front glow
1: mm-hmm. to me it's almost a rebuttal to the sepia tone and desaturating color because to me in atonement and in this the colors pop a ton mm-hmm. when you see a yeah. colorful dress it really shows up so if anything the color is extra saturated and the contrast is more in your face.
2: I think what I think what I get out of that is when I think of sepia-toned films, I think of American Westerns in the 60s, mm-hmm. between 1955 and 1970, we'll say. That's what I think of when I think of a sepia-toned film. And then, of course, some current indie stuff. But I think of these jewel tones, which I think is what these films focus on, very rich, deep colors rather than pastels or uh, vivid primaries. They all kind of feel of a piece, and I would say that this film and atonement both fall into that. And to a certain extent, honestly, you can see it in something like when shakes the barley in their not not necessarily the cinematog- cinematographic choices, but in the filters mm. and the lighting. Mm-hmm. There's waves of themes in how lighting and filters are done and that's very much where they were at when they made this movie.
0: And I wonder where it started because this very, very easily could have been the look for the first half of Empire of the Sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not.
2: No, no, much more washed out.
0: Yeah, it's it's a lot more grim in Empire of the Sun.
2: Well, Empire of the Sun is more real. You know, it's something like Imitation Game and Atonement is overly saturated. Yeah. Empire of the Sun it lives in more the real world where things are more muted. Well, and
1: and also I think the contrast is different. I remember in Empire of the Sun most of the background stuff was muted, but when you had the crowd scene at the beginning with a certain outfit walking through. Like, I think there were people dressed like Nazis, right? Or wearing swastika. Like, those popped out and that color was accentuated. There's Marie Antoinette riding in the back of her limousine. Right. So, anything she was wearing that had red or something like that, it popped out compared to the rest of it. Whereas, I think in Atonement and this, it's everything is popping. All of the colors coming out. And this this might be a good time to bring up the sort of, quote-unquote, Turing test scene where he's being interrogated, because I found that there, even the color of the bricks behind him is really popping out. It's like that sort of an aquamarine, like, blue-greenish color, which, again reminds me of, not just thematically of the voight Kampf interrogation at the very beginning of Blade Runner, this scene is famous in cinema. It's been studied Mm -hmm. in film school many times because of the look that they were able to give it, and the way the smoke fills the room, and like the depth that they were able to give it. But the color of the room generally is kind of the same color. So I again, I, I have no proof. I haven't read it. I don't know if they did that intentionally, but there's definitely a little bit of a voight conf interrogation kind of theme. And so, yeah, I mean, it kind of fits what they're going for, I guess. So it, I'm not mentioning it because it stuck out in any kind of negative way. I'm just noticing the similarities and noticing this particular style that it was filmed in.
0: I don't think I've ever, and I doubt I will ever, hear you compare something to Blade Runner in a negative way. Usually if something makes you think of Blade Runner, it's like you wrapping up in a warm blanket and you're just like, ooh, it's cozy in here. I know where I am. That's a fair assessment.
2: <laughs> it's a positive. We all have those movies for ourselves.
0: You know, like, you know what? You know what I fucking hated? This movie that reminded me of Blade Runner. Like, that <laughs> sounds like some shit that I would say. Yeah. Not because I hate Blade Runner, but because when something reminds me of something that I like and isn't that thing, I usually resent it.
2: Mm, you get, get mad you. at it. I
0: do. That's one of the reasons, like, I, like Empire Records, I'm like, why am I not just watching The Breakfast Club?
2: because empire records is
0: don't you dare Don't you tread softly okay easy
2: it's its own thing
0: it is its own thing i suppose but it would really like to be the breakfast club
2: it's rex manning day god damn it it's the breakfast club if they were in college how about that <laughs>
1: Yeah. I was surprised. Was this your pick Liam? It was. Okay. I'm always ready to jump down Liam's throat. Cause I'm like, Oh, we're doing too many, like not really war films. Like God damn it. This is a war film podcast. And then I forgot. There's a lot more war in this movie than I remembered. Now, obviously in this film, a lot of it's most of it probably is done with CGI other than like the street. Scenes of bombed uh, streets in London or in England. I think even a lot of those were done with CGI. Sure, and I'm not going to get into like the military inaccuracies because that's not really what this film is about. But there are things done for dramatic effect, like showing twelve U-boats under the water, all like pretty close to each other, firing torpedo. It's like, yeah, a the Germans never had more than two hundred U-boats throughout the war altogether, let alone like a hundred, you know, for one attack. Yeah, and U-boats. U-boats would not travel in packs that closely, like they would be further spread out for obvious reasons. You don't want to be depth charged right next to another U-boat, etc. cetera. So there are little inaccuracies with the military stuff. But again, I was surprised. It, it looks good in terms of the visuals. And I was surprised by how much of that they show, the Heinkels bomber and, and those kinds of shots. But what'd you guys think about the look of the film, the production design, the set design, that kind of stuff?
2: I think it's fine. It's nothing spectacular. It it feels very, for lack of a better phrase, Oscar baity. You know, it's got a certain glow to it. Like the costumes are all very historically accurate. The street scenes feel authentic. Mm -hmm. The clothes, again. Oh, so amazing. I just I have to say those outfits are just so good.
1: Almost too good. Like Touring was known for sort of constantly being disheveled and not caring about his appearance yes. And in the film. He's like very well buttoned up and very put together. Right.
2: and Cumberbatch is that way. He's he's a bit of a fashion dude, honestly.
0: I don't know. His shirt tails were untucked. It they were there were he's kind of moments rumbled. of disheveledness.
2: There's a bit of a rumple to his suit as this as the film progresses. And his flat is definitely... A mess. Yeah.
1: He hated wearing ties. Like, he would go to work not really dressed properly for the time and the way everyone else was. Another thing that I know was Cumberbatch's thing. Like, nobody asked him to do... It's it's almost like that meme where it's like, nobody. And then it's like, Benedict Cumberbatch. Like, I want to wear an exact replica of Alan Turing's teeth for the filming of this, which (laughs) is exactly what he did. And the child actor also did the same thing. So, they both wore replicas of Allentorian's teeth, which I was like, okay, well, I guess you're kind of method, so that makes sense for that. But other than that, like, it's not like he had really screwed up teeth or anything, so no, no one else is going to know that you went through that trouble? The teeth thing, I don't know that I would call that method.
0: What is it then? <laughs> so, method is almost exclusively driven by internals.
2: Yeah, you're living as that character
0: you're finding all of your internal motivation and then you have to take that internal motivation and express it outwardly there are a lot of external things that people will do to get into character most notably like putting on a different pair of shoes so yeah i mean there have been actual times that like i was performing a monologue for a class i fucking nailed it i did great everyone said so Even the teacher had like, you know, we do like feedback afterwards and you know everybody was like, I thought you did this really well. I thought you did that really well. Teacher was just glowing reviews. My professor thought it was great. And then like, oh, one thing you, you weren't wearing the right shoes. You're wearing sneakers. I would have probably changed your shoes. But other than that, like everything was perfect. I got a fucking C on that monologue. Whoa. And I went to him and I was like, hey, man, can I get some more feedback on that? Because... And I ran down the list of all the good shit that he had said. And I was like, the only thing you said I did wrong was that I had the wrong shoes on. (laughs) And he looks at me and he just says, well, shoes are important. (laughs) Wow.
2: What a power move.
0: Yeah. That wasn't even my hardest professor. I had some professors who were real bastards. He was a great guy. But yeah, no, a lot of times you'll find a character with a a particular external thing. A lot of times it's shoes. It could be a cape or I don't know, because I'm not a woman, but I imagine like playing a part that requires a corset without a corset, then you put the corset on. I feel like that's going to affect your whole character. Right. Something like that drastic. But yeah, like that kind of thing. So like. Wearing his teeth, maybe a little weird, but at the same time, I kind of get it.
2: Anything to help you get in the headspace.
1: Right. But your original point, Liam, was I think you were pointing out that that's not necessarily method. It's not necessarily method. So method is
0: kind of a, for lack of a better word, a bastardization of the Stanislavski system. Right. With Stanislavski, the whole idea is to like, figure all these things out about your character so that you can get into that headspace. Like, how did they grow Mm -hmm. up? What did they have for breakfast? And you put all of it almost into a checklist of things that you can go through in your mind. You're like, okay, this, 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 this. And you concentrate on it and you learn it so well that when performance time comes, you can just say, fuck it and forget it. But already it's been worked into your character. It's second nature at that point. Exactly. What method does is it kind of takes a portion of that and really drills down into the mental side of things where you have to get into that headspace and become the character in your brain. So your brain
1: thinks you are Alan Turing, Mm. which is part of why we often hear stories about method actors like Daniel Day-Lewis is the quintessential example, staying in character for like an entire shoot, Right. 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 So when they cut, he's still Daniel Plainview from Other Will We Blood, for example, right?
0: Exactly. You know, and there's... Daniel Day-Lewis is one of those people that I absolutely fucking love and I never want him to teach an acting class. (laughs) Right. Ever. That's like learning a diet and exercise routine from Christian Bale. Just like, don't fucking do what that person does.
2: Just say no, kids. Just say no.
0: I don't know. The Strasburg Method thing it's it it does produce some good results but like i don't necessarily know if you have to go through all
1: of that wait now i'm confused because you said stanislavski the first time so it's the stanislavski
0: system but then lee strasberg and company took that and created the strasberg method Oh.
2: And is that where the method in method acting comes from?
0: That's where the method comes from in method acting. Okay. Probably the most notable person specifically trained by Lee Strasberg would have been Marlon Brando.
2: Oh, oh okay. that makes a lot of sense.
1: But there's a bunch of those folks. Do you know about Cumberbatch personally? Like, I do feel like he's kind of a method actor, but is that. I don't know.
0: I think method, you know, and again, with the exception of Daniel Day Lewis, a lot of times the Brits don't give a fuck about method. Mm. They've got Shakespeare. They don't like method. Doesn't do you a damn bit of good with Shakespeare.
2: Right. Right.
0: It does absolutely nothing for you. So I would be surprised if Benedict Cumberbatch were a straight method kind of kind of actor he might dabble here and there well
2: like the scene like his uh performance is smog and he's doing the motion capture for smog like that's it, i agree it's not necessarily method but he definitely gets into his characters in a way that a lot of people do don't feel is necessary. And I feel like he did that with this character in particular.
0: The man shows up to work. That's, that's for sure.
2: Well, yeah. And, and and again, I I need
1: to just reiterate, no one asked him to go get a copy of Alan Turing's dentures made and wear them for the part. Right. Like that was his call. So that's like a very specific commitment.
0: But you also have things like Johnny Depp is also not one who I immediately think of when it comes to like, oh, that's a method actor. But like Johnny Depp when he was playing when when he was playing Jack Sparrow went out and got all of his teeth Captain Gold mm. because he wanted majority gold teeth and then he like negotiated with the director down because the director didn't want him to have any gold teeth so he went out and got all gold teeth and then was like I'd like to keep this one this one and this one please oh
2: my god because
0: he wanted those gold teeth.
1: So- <laughs> Actors get into some weird shit. I think we can finish this section with a quote from Cumberbatch himself. Benedict Cumberbatch confessed that in one of the final scenes of the film, he couldn't stop crying and had a breakdown. It was, as he said, being an actor or a person that had grown incredibly fond of the character and thinking what he had suffered and how that had affected him. So, not that that necessarily has anything to do with method, but certainly it shows Cumberbatch's commitment to the part. I think he felt a responsibility. Yes,
2: yes. To
0: really nail this. And I was watching the the making of, and again, this is apocryphal, like, you know, I haven't read interviews with them, but somebody in the making of uh, was talking about how Alan Turing's nieces, I think, saw their performance and said that it was almost indistinguishable from seeing their, their uncle alive again. Which... <sighs> Sure.
2: Well, see, here's here's where I have uh, the big difference of opinion is that there's some things that people said were true, but he was also not the neurotic character that he is in this.
0: The super autist?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's obvious in my mind that they are kind of assigning him to the autism spectrum or something like that, where he doesn't read social cues and all of those stereotypical things that people think of when they think of someone on the autism spectrum. And from what I had read, Turing understood what a goddamn joke was and told them himself. He was mm-hmm. a personable human being. He was not disliked among his colleagues, and he worked as part of a team right. easily and all of that. Like, he, he was- Warm
1: and charming and especially liked by children. Yeah, I mean. he
2: liked kids. He liked, you know, he was just a regular person. And this movie really tries to other him in some ways that are- Very stereotypical and are often frustrating because in reality, no one acts like that. People just aren't so black and white. But I think trying to achieve some kind of realism rather than reality is presenting what everybody expects of this character rather than who this character actually was, which is a thing that biopics really tend to do. You know, they kind of take Mm -hmm. the public's perception of who this kind of person would be and then squash it in around the reality of who this person was.
1: Yeah. And you're trying to build some drama and tension with, I know we'll get into his sexuality in detail, but I think that from what I read, he was much more open about it with colleagues and close friends But they're trying to lead you down a path where you see how he is eventually arrested and charged with, man, what's the actual charge there? Gross indecency. Gross indecency, thank you.
2: Here is, I think, a good opportunity to take a couple minutes and explain to folks who aren't aware what it was like to be gay at that time. So, I have read a lot about this, and it wasn't necessarily some horrifying secret that you kept there were lots of people who lived not openly but everybody understood what was going on and you just kind of looked the other way like for instance the marriage that he uh, you know he proposes to joan and she accepts and even after she finds out that he's gay she's like okay that's fine all marriages have issues because at the time There was a thing called companionate marriage, which it was expected that you went into it where there was not going to be any sex. It was a non-sexual partnership. And no,
0: I'm sorry. Just for clarification. Was this a concept that was expected in the gay community or was this in the culture at large? There was an understanding that gay people would get married and not have sex.
2: Yeah. Culture at large. Okay. It was understood because, and here's the interesting thing, is that for a lot of women at the time, there are these very specific and rigorous requirements for this is how women are supposed to behave. And so in a companionate marriage, they might not fuck their husband, but that doesn't mean they aren't having sex with someone else. They're able to hold a job. They're able to do things that regular society or a quote unquote regular husband isn't going to allow. On the other side of it, it wouldn't have been unusual if they had gotten married for him to go and have close friends, you know, and it's like a cover for each other Mm -hmm. type thing, because at the time, like marriage wasn't looked at as this passionate love affair. Marriage was, we're doing this so that we have the kids, we can support each other, we can make it through this world together. That's kind of the huge difference between then and now. And so being gay was this secretive but everybody knows kind of thing and it was often referred to as being a a friend of dorothy right that time but it was also horrifically persecuted but only against certain people because if alan turing hadn't been alan turing he'd just been some random dude on the street the chemical castration all of that none of that would have happened to him he would have been slapped with a fine and sent on his way
1: i was gonna ask you katie my perception from the little bit I've read in the film, et cetera, is that the British government, you know, British culture in general still being about being prim and proper and minding your manners, et cetera, and, and like outward appearance, they weren't necessarily like going after people for being gay. It was more like, almost like don't ask, don't tell. If you're keeping yes. it where people can't see it, we're not really going to persecute you. But if you're going to go out to a bar and- you know, kiss a guy in the middle of the street, and, and police are going to come by, they're going to harass you, they're going to arrest you, whatever. Like, that's the impression I got. Is that kind of how it was?
2: Correct, hence why there's that moment in the police station, right? Where one of them comes up to me, is like
0: Arnold Murray hangs around that pub, men pay him for a go. Turing's one of the men that paid, only Mr. Murray then has the bright idea of robbing Turing's house after
2: with a friend. That's what Turing's hiding. he's a puff? No spy. Which was their word for gay then. Right. And the only reason that it continues beyond that, because you hear the lieutenant or commanding officer, whatever they call them, say, are we really going to prosecute a Cambridge professor? Right. Are we really going to do this?
0: That's Stephen Waddington.
2: Yes. And the guy's like... No, there's something more going on here. We need to blah, blah, blah. And like, if he hadn't done that, they probably wouldn't have pushed, at least in the film. I don't know. There were other reasons probably why they did it in real life. But that was definitely a reality of how the time would have been. And that it's like, well, we're only going to prosecute you for reasons other than you are also homosexual or assholes are assholes
1: well and also making the british government look bad like if you work for mi6 or you work for the british government and he
2: did work for the government at that time in real life Right, he was still employed with the code breakers at that point
1: right so i imagine that that's a lot of the issue too is that he worked for the government specifically so these instances of gross indecency as opposed to palatable indecency. <laughs>
2: right. In my mind, if you haven't committed gross indecency in some way, at least at some point in your life, have you really fucking lived?
0: You're just boring at this point.
2: Exactly.
0: So here's what I was impressed by.
2: Yeah, let's hear it.
0: As, as far as the historical accuracy or lack thereof. Maybe because I'm jaded by, by things that are supposedly based on a true story. Okay. I'm 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 never surprised when I find out that something is not exactly accurate. So I've seen this movie before. I've seen it a few times and this time I I really was trying to put on my my skeptical spectacles, my skeptical glasses.
2: Your skepticals?
0: To see like I was okay, where can I where can I find the where where can I find the 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 bullshit in this movie. And so I started like just, you know, doing cursory Google searches of things. And I was surprised at how most of the characters were real people. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, yes. Yep. All, almost all of them.
0: Even like John, the Soviet spy was really John, Very the Soviet Scottish spy.
2: and delightful. Honestly. Yeah.
0: Love, loved his, his performance. He was personable. He was warm. He was knew he was a homosexual. Now I'm sure a lot of the things about that character as appear in the film are, Not necessarily like how that person would, how that person and Alan Turing would have interacted.
2: No, because they because they never actually interacted in real life. Mm -hmm. Two of them didn't know each other.
0: Yeah, so again, that's one of those things that got condensed or put together in in a in a weird way that isn't accurate. But I was kind of impressed that he was a real person and he wasn't just made up for sizzle. I watched this movie and I did absolutely no research on it. At the time, but I was like, okay, so this person is probably an amalgamation of so on and so forth. Yeah. Joan may or may not have existed. Spoiler alert, she existed.
2: Oh, and and was alive up until very recently and still was doing work and kicking ass up until almost her death. She was still doing research, still working in, in the science fields. Joan was amazing.
1: Which is very cool. On a much more superficial note, Turing's niece commented that she didn't like the casting of Keira Knightley because the real Joan was rather plain.
2: (laughs) You know what? I I heard that and I thought, bitch, don't be catty. Right? (laughs) I've seen pictures of Joan and you know what? She was fine. She looked great for someone who is dealing with existed
0: in the
1: 1930s <laughs> as just a regular person,
2: and she's dealing with World War II deprivation. Like, and
1: she was probably a genius, so
2: yeah, yeah,
1: more, much more important than her looks. Yeah, uh,
0: homely Kira Knightley is not, I mean, bless them, they tried, they did, they tried to make Kira Knightley a little homelier.
2: She looks like Kira Knightley with less fancy makeup. <laughs> I mean, Karen Knightley
1: is super hot. Like, what are you going to do? You know, like. She's a beautiful like, a, woman. Yeah, exactly. I, like, This might be my favorite uh, Karen Knightley, though. I thought, because we've talked about sort of how we're all kind of meh on her acting. Like, she's not bad. She's not fantastic. She's really I good she was, at this. She was really good at this, right?
2: Yeah, you know, and I think the reason for it for me was because I've got to give a, a lot of credit to the director, Morton Tildum, on this, because in this, I feel like we get to see Kieran Knightley stretch her wings she gets to be a sassy bitch she gets to be a a flirty adult woman she gets to talk about the the particular difficulties that women of that age had i'm a woman in a man's job and i don't have the luxury of being an ass well my parents won't let me get this job Mm -hmm. and if i take the job my parents are going to disown me so if something falls through i'm totally screwed Feels like she gets a lot of leeway to just really go with it. And I loved that for her because I felt like she she got to just stretch her wings and fly.
0: She really sold me. The the point in the movie when, and, and again, this is probably for, for both of them where the best acting in it comes in is in the scene at the end, once he's been, Ugh. once he's gone through the, the hormone therapy, both of them are so fucking rock solid in that scene. Like, they're both absolutely, like, heartbreaking.
1: Mm-hmm. I did love the writing, though. I mean, granted, I think there... It sounds like there isn't a real historical reference to say that Turing was on the autism spectrum. Or at least, certainly, even if he was, it was much more mild than what's portrayed in the film with, like, the carrots and the peas, etc. I did love the writing of that conversation where he's like... <laughs> Alan, we're going to lunch. And he just ignores him. And he's like, hey, did you hear me? And I'm like, of course he's ignoring you. You're announcing that you're going to lunch. Why does he give a shit that you're going to lunch? And he's like, right. well, I asked you if you want to come to lunch with us. And he's like, no, you didn't. And he's just being super <laughs> literal. And like, so again, pedantic. that's an exaggeration, obviously. But I did love the way that scene is written. I was like, this is a but great it fucking communicates really, <laughs> it's really such well. such a great scene.
2: And I, I think I don't necessarily think you have to be autistic to take things literally. You know it's not you can be or you can't be and it doesn't really right. m- matter in the scene
1: maybe you're just trying to be left alone because he's like graphing shit and he's like busy he's like dude stop telling me about your sandwich i just want to get back to my work which is you know fair enough and fucking i
0: guys i've got a huge crush on matthew good oh that man is smooth as silk i fucking love him and i love him in this movie probably more than any other movie that i've seen him in Tell
2: no, 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 no. You can dance with your fiancé anytime you like. Right now, this
0: moment, my turn. But yeah, Hugh Alexander, also a real
1: dude. Knock me over with yep. a feather. That man yep. existed. A- an
2: actual chess prodigy.
1: Yeah. Oh,
2: oh, can we have a crush segment? <laughs> oh, yeah. We should have a crush segment every episode. Oh, my God. Right?
0: So I, I used to do this thing back when I would go to the movies. Sometimes I would just go to a movie theater and see what I was on time for without checking anything.
2: Ooh, I love it.
0: Call it movie roulette. We'll see what happens. This is how I saw movies like Black Snake Moan. And the, another one that I saw was Head Revisited, which was the first thing I saw Matthew Good in. Okay. So, yeah, I was just like, oh, I guess I'll go see this. It was Head Revisited. I had no idea about anything about it. And yeah, I didn't love the movie, but I loved him in it. And then I saw him in Watchmen. And then I saw him in this he plays uh,
1: Ozymandias.
2: Okay, so Dan, you go second.
1: Okay, my crush in this, as is often the case when he shows up, is Mark Strong. I fucking love that actor. (laughs) He is so badass.
0: Congratulations. My warmest welcome to His Majesty's service.
1: If you speak a word of what I'm about to show you, you will be executed for high treason. So the only things I can think of him in of recent are... 1917, which we'll be talking Mm -hmm. about soon because it won our next listener poll. And he has a brief but phenomenal role in that. And then he plays Stuart Menzies, who is in charge of MI6 in this, which is also the basis for James Bond's boss, which apparently is why that character is called M, which I found super fucking cool. They also put him in an authentic 1940s blue pinstripe suit because they wanted to give him... More of the appearance of a mob boss compared to the tweed-wearing mathematicians. And it looked like, so good.
2: Oh, fanning myself how sexy that shit was.
1: Now, here's a question for you,
0: Dan. Have you watched the Kingsman movies? No, I haven't. Because he's in them. Are they good? Yes and no. Are they worth watching? They're worth watching, it sounds they're like. They're worth watching. They're a fun thing. But Mark Strong... Is in the Kingsman and in Kingsman: The Golden Circle. Good enough for me. Katie, who's your crush?
2: Oh, Karen Knightley, hundred percent. Okay, she's gorgeous. Although not generally my type. I'm not usually quite into such skinny ladies.
0: Don't dig the wayfish chicks.
2: I wayfish chicks are gorgeous, but it's not necessarily what my eye turns to first, if sure. you will. But Karen Knightley playing an insanely intelligent woman who is savvy enough to deal with. Uh, You know, the misogyny and ridiculous social norms of that time frame. And Keira Knightley pulls it off like a champ. It's like, yes, ma'am. I am here for it. I think besides the
1: fact that she's beautiful and physically gorgeous, I think it's her brain in this that really sells her as like such a hot person.
2: And her, her sassy attitude that she doesn't. I love that she gets to she slaps him when he lies to her yes she is slapping you because you are fucking lying to her and she knows it (laughs) she knows what you're doing she's not a goddamn dog to be get out of here i hate you like that's not gonna work on you know joan clark who's one of the smartest women working at the time so and kira knightley pulls it off like a champ she's my crush of the movie Let's talk a little bit about that hormone therapy. So, and and we don't need to talk a lot about it. Just a little bit.
0: So I showed this to my kids because they like watching as many of the movies as they're allowed to, to, to listen along to the podcast. I love that. I know. It's nice. Hi Liam's kids. You guys are great. Thanks for <laughs> yeah. listening. Cut that out. Don't make them feel good about themselves. <laughs>
2: hey, I'd just be happy if my kid would watch the movie with me at this point. He's 14 and far too cool. <laughs>
0: Isabel in particular is is my, my fledgling cinephile. She That's awesome. stays up through most of the movies and is just always happy to watch a movie with me.
1: Good for you, Isabel.
0: Yeah, rocket kiddo. The only part that really threw them was the suicide and the chemical castration. Because trying to explain to kids with no, like people who have no sex drive as of yet, like their hormones haven't even kicked in why this is something that would make you want to kill yourself. I just don't know enough about it to really, like I felt ill-equipped at explaining that to them because I just didn't have the information. So Katie, if you know what was involved, I'd love to hear about it.
2: I do, unfortunately. So... Chemical castration at this time in the UK was something that was employed sporadically, but they used a substance called diethylstilbestrol, which is essentially a non-steroidal estrogen. So Turing would have been given shots of it. And there were, at the time, there were legitimate medical uses for this. Uh, It was later discovered that, oh, hey, this causes cancer. (laughs) So they stopped doing it and have much safer products now. But essentially they were giving turing estrogen to suppress his testosterone which caused a whole host of issues that they didn't really think about and weren't concerned with for instance he he grew breast tissue it changed some of the structure of how his the the fat in his body is Mm -hmm. laid out so essentially it was like a really primitive early form of transition as a way to suppress his sexuality and suppress his libido entirely.
0: I was going to ask if that, if this is in any way like comparable to what somebody who's transitioning today would, would experience.
2: No, no. Someone who's transitioning today would be met with much better medication. Both. If you are transitioning from female to male, as they say, you are going to be taking testosterone blockers in addition to estrogen And your experience is not going to be nearly so traumatic. This is a very harsh drug that he's being given.
1: My only reference to this that I know about would be from people I've heard about with bipolar disorder, which still to this day, one of the better treatments to control it is lithium.
2: Lithium is the most commonly thought of, but it is really hard on your body when you take it.
1: Well, and that's the reason I brought it up is one of the issues with lithium is it like destroys your sex drive. So it really affects your hormones. And if you're still a functioning, you know, younger person, that really sucks. But then again, bipolar disorder is really debilitating if you have it badly. So it sucks because sometimes those people are faced with a trade-off, which is a personal decision, but still difficult.
2: The other side of this, we're talking about the medical castration and then his suicide. So I'm kind of torn about this. And I think the movie actually handled it pretty well. So cyanide, you know, as we think of it now, is not something you can just go pick up at the hardware store. You could definitely go to the store and just purchase cyanide at that time. Mm -hmm. And it was used in multiple different chemical uh, applications, including electroplating. Ah. which is something that uh, Turing liked to do in his free time. Like you do. Yes. So there's a a long needle to thread here, folks, so I'm sorry if this gets a little crazy. So Turing's mother didn't believe that he had committed suicide because he did die of cyanide poisoning, but there was disputed evidence as to whether it was more likely that he ingested it, meaning swallowed, versus inhaled. Mm -hmm. And... He was a big fan of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the Disney film.
1: Oh. And
2: he had a particular uh, enjoyment, at least, again, I'm getting this from, these are comments from his friends, of the scene where the queen dips the apple into the poison, and when he was found dead by his housemaid the morning after he died, there was a half-eaten apple Mm. next to him. However, he also usually ate an apple before he went to bed and it wasn't unusual for him to not eat the whole thing. So, there is a whole lot of questions about whether or not this was purposeful or accidental. When Joan was asked about it, they kept up with each other after the the war and she made a comment of like, yep, it's definitely something that you could also interpret as accidental. Mm. Meaning that Her best guess was that he had killed himself, but he had done it in such a way that his mother and other people close to him could deny that and have, you know, some internal peace about it. Right. And there was also the idea of, there were reports that he wasn't doing too bad. This I heard conflicting info about whether or not he was still on the hormonal medication at the time of his death or whether it had stopped a year earlier. I I saw some things that said, one and some things that said the other but there were reports that he was in good spirits and there were reports that he had gone and seen a mystic and the mystic had told him something that had made him very depressed so there's a whole lot of questionable information around Alan Turing's death but it is entirely a safe bet to say that he was not happy at the time of his death, and he had suffered a lot of trauma and persecution by the government that he had worked so hard for so that suicide isn't necessarily out of the realm of possibility, and neither is he was being a bit careless with the cyanide. So, unfortunately, like with some suicides, you know, we're just never going to know the truth, but it's still a fucking travesty that we can lay at the door of the British government, in my opinion.
0: You said that you were... you. Thought the movie handled the ending pretty well, and I agree. They there was a deleted scene where they do address the apple, yes, and like the the detective knock is is summoned to his house again, and they're, they they discuss the apple, and you see it on the bed next to him. But removing that scene as it is a deleted scene, and it's deleted for a reason.
2: Yeah, I'm glad they did that.
0: I, I think overall, I am as well, but I did find it interesting that there were also references to the cyanide already
2: and apples and
0: apples, and I appreciated those both making their way into it,
2: and those seemed those if you know the story of it, those seem more poignant and good additions if you do not have that scene where he killed where you see you know the obvious po- self poisoning with the apple,
0: yeah, the um the script itself, I think was. I mean, obviously this one for for best adapted screenplay mm-hmm. at the Oscars. I like this script a lot, and I think I like it a lot because, and I don't know if Graham Moore is a playwright, but this plays very much like a play in my mind. Mm-hmm. Like I could see this as a staged production.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Very, very easily, which when you're trying to make something not condensed and based on a true story isn't always great for the accuracy because on stage you have even more limitations of time and space and so on and so forth to get it right. But man, it really does help with the flow and helps keep things clipping along. Like there is not a lot of dead weight in this movie.
2: No, I mean, it's trying to do a lot. It is. I I couldn't tell as I was watching it, I was like, I'm not sure I really like these CGI sections that are illustrating what was going on with the war, but not really. They're just reminding us war is happening and there is a threat.
1: People are dying.
2: And it's done meh. It is fine. But I've
0: seen it done worse than in this movie. That's true. Totally. I've seen Darkest Hour.
2: Yeah, uh, me too. Looking back on it, I think that it reminds the viewer of where we're at and where these characters are existing and the...
0: The stakes.
2: Yeah, the true weight of what they're deciding.
0: Now, the, the Carlisle, is that is that the famous instance of the British letting an attack go through that they could have stopped?
2: The scene in the film is made up for the film. That guy was not, there was no code break. Well, oh, yeah,
0: I know that, like, it, that would just be wildly odd.
2: Right. The odds of that. Yeah.
0: I feel like that's where, if this happened in a stage play, like, you'd buy it, but in a movie, not so
1: much. But I can say about the juxtaposition of ships going down and how much were they able to intervene with their planning based on what they knew the Germans were going to do from deciphering the messages without letting the Germans know that they had cracked the code, which would then destroy all their work because the Germans would rearrange all their machines and they'd be screwed. Right. So there's a little bit of that consideration being done, but it doesn't happen- In the way you see it in the film and certainly again touring had nothing to do with that because by 39 he had already left so again in these wartime scenes he's not working at station x and also as you would imagine from real life none of these mathematicians get to make those decisions over no! like where you're interfering with military movements. So those things were passed up to higher command and those people made those decisions.
2: The character uh, that Mark Strong plays is the one who made those decisions, actually.
1: Exactly. There, There is a real incident where Turing went around him and went directly to the Prime Minister's office about something. But yeah, that's a mix of reality and kind of dramatic filmmaking. But- before we get into the breakdown, I wanted to ask Liam a very specific question. Liam, since we're talking about the acting and the writing, we talked about in Parasite. Those of us who are on our Patreon know, and if you're not on our Patreon, check it out, because we had a great discussion about the korean film Parasite. And Liam, you were especially complimentary about a scene where uh, two characters are interacting, and one character says a quote to the other earlier in the film, And then in a similar scene where the roles are kind of reversed, it's like a romantic scene, you're expecting the character to repeat this line, and then they don't, and you were impressed with the restraint of the writing in that scene. Yes. So there's this famous line first stated by Christopher in their school flashbacks, where he says to Alan, You know, Alan, sometimes it's the very people who no one imagines anything of who do the things no one can imagine. I believe that's the first utterance of the line. Yes. And then Turing repeats it. Yeah, Turing says it to Joan
0: after after he comes and like lies to her parents to get her back to Bletchley.
1: And then towards the end of the film, she restates it to Turing in trying to tell him not to give up. So, what did you think about that? Because I remember watching that and going, okay, this is a really great quote. And then they did it a second time and I was like okay, they're not using the restraint Liam was so proud of in Parasite. And then when they used it a third time, I was like, okay, I think even without Liam pointing this out to me, this would have clashed a little bit. Yes,
0: it is heavy-handed. This is when you're writing you're going to be like, oh, and this is going on the fucking poster. Click, 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 click. Right? Like just fists on the keyboard. This
2: is a kill your darlings moment that somebody missed. Like I'm so
0: unsurprised by it that it's hard to say that I'm disappointed. Right. <laughs> it's things like that that make it stand out when you see something like Parasite do the same right. thing so well or like not fall into that same trap. I think three times is
1: too much. Right. It's good in a Lottzi, but not in this situation. Yeah, like so yeah, it, it, that's
0: exactly. basically they are going for the Lotzi, the non-funny Lottzi.
2: Which isn't good.
0: <laughs> yeah, you don't want a non-funny Lottzi. For, for those keeping score at home, a Lotzi is when you're- when you repeat a joke multiple times for for comedic effect, and it's supposed to get funnier each time. Right. Death of Stalin was our
1: example of that. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Go back and listen to the Death of Stalin episode. Three <gasps> is, is the classic example, but like, if it's a really good lotzi, you can hit it four times. Right. But not with something poignant. You don't get that same return on investment that you do with something funny.
2: Yeah. It cheapens it. It
0: mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. It's a good line, and I understand that it's the point. Fucking all understand it's the point, guys.
2: Personally, I would have said, have Kieran Knightley say it to him at the end of the film. That would have been the most poignant. But- well,
0: she already had that really good-ass fucking line right before it, too. So it's kind of like a hat on a hat. Now, if you wish you could have been normal,
1: I can promise you I do not.
0: The world is an infinitely better place, precisely because you were. That fucking line slaps really hard and it doesn't need the hat
1: on the hat. So now it's time for the breakdown where we ask ourselves, what was the objective of this film? Were they on target? And did we like it? Katie?
2: The objective of this film was, in my mind, a fairly uh, noble, for lack of a better word. It was meant, and I think to bring awareness to a maligned individual who did an unbelievable amount of scientific development, not just because it helped win World War II, but because it's literally enabling the conversation that we are having today. And our Facebook group and everything, Alan Turing, was hugely instrumental in creating the internet that we are all using right now. And I love that for him. I think it's great that we get a nice... He gets a story that makes him the sympathetic character. But I don't necessarily love how they did it. There's a whole lot of stereotyping of the quote-unquote nerd character going on that I found frustrating. And it definitely falls into the trope of the tragic gay It's just so tragic, you know. He just wants to be loved. And no one will ever love him. And he has to pay for people to love him. And, like, that just wasn't accurate of Alan Turing or the time period. There were plenty of gay couples who were together. It wasn't impossible for him to find love. The guy who they mention that they bring in and they interrogate him or whatever. Like, none of that shit happened. That was his young boyfriend in reality. So, the choice to fall into those really problematic tropes of that. And I know they're not trying to do this, but the idea that like being gay is somehow a lot in life that you've been cursed with is, is just tiring. And it wasn't necessarily how people saw it. Then it wasn't necessarily not that some people certainly did see it that way. And touring may have been one of them. He certainly had comments about, how taking this estrogen was affecting him and his sexuality and all of that. But I don't like that level of simplification when it comes to such a complicated topic. But I really, really enjoyed the depiction, despite its huge levels of inaccuracies, of Bletchley Park, the code breakers, of this incredibly obscure but... horrifically important aspect of world war two that did make a significant difference on the war and not just that war but like the wars that continued so was it on target i think they hit the target they wanted but not the target i wanted i would have hoped for something better i think but i think also in 2013 2014 when they're filming this it was a fairly progressive target to hit Did I like it? I'm never going to watch it again because it was very sad and I can read much more hopeful depictions of Alan Turing elsewhere, including in Neil Stevenson's book, Cryptonomicon, which I highly recommend if you haven't read it. I feel like it was worth making and I'm glad I watched it. But that's it. I, I didn't like it. I don't think it's a movie you're necessarily meant to like. It's troubling to watch at the least just because of the reality of the situation and some of the choices they made when they adapted it are not the best thought out. So that's where I'm at.
1: Fair enough. Liam.
0: The objective of this film was to put Alan Turing and his contributions and the tragic way that his life ended into the public consciousness and understanding In a very mainstream way. I think that this was made as almost a direct rebuttal to a movie that had come out about 10 years earlier that was just called Enigma. I remember I saw that in the theater. It is impossible to find now.
2: Hmm. Hopefully on purpose. It was just buried. Yeah,
0: I think so. And this was a movie that had like Kate Winslet post-Titanic. It was written by Tom Stoppard who had also just won an Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. This was a heavy, heavy hitting movie in the, the Oscar bait categories. It had a good pedigree. The director was an Oscar winning director, but it's about a guy who's specifically not named Alan Turing. Who's really upset that the woman he's in love with slash obsessed with might be a Nazi spy in Bletchley park. Like it's,
1: Oh my bonkers.
0: How fucking bad this movie is and how badly they botched the telling of this story that goddamn! this feels really authentic in comparison. Right. I haven't heard anybody say that this was made as a rebuttal to Enigma, but it feels very much like a rebuttal to Enigma. And again, I'm not fluent in the history of this by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it hit the target pretty well for what its stated purpose was it might have hit it a little too well in that way that biopics do where it's just like oh man this is the jesus christ of computers like we wouldn't have anything and maybe we wouldn't but that's not to say that like he was starting from scratch or that somebody else might not have been able to do something similar but he's the guy who did it you know what i mean But it doesn't say, you know, like you were saying, it doesn't really give a lot of credit for the code breaking to the other people who were involved with the code breaking. It plays with those timelines in an effort to give more focus and more stage time to Alan Turing, which he deserves and is worthy of, but not necessarily at the expense of the truth. But I fucking love this movie. (laughs) I know you said you're not supposed to like it. I like it. I like it a lot. I've watched it multiple times before, and I'm going to watch it again. I'm watching it right now, <laughs> and you guys can't even tell. I love Benedict Cumberbatch. The portrayal is a little spectrum-y, and I don't know that that is necessarily accurate to who Alan Turing was, but it communicates in the narrative that they're putting forth in the, in the Turing test scene. The movie ties in a couple of concepts that might almost be offensive if they didn't do it so well. Like if they didn't articulate it exactly the way that they did, the comparison of being a person on the spectrum or being a gay person or being a machine as all likely as all being kind of the same thing, I could see being offensive when you just say it like that, but the way it's articulated that we allow for humans to have such divergences from one another. You like strawberries, I hate ice skating, you cry at sad films, I am allergic to pollen. What is the point of, of, of different tastes, different preferences if not to say that our brains work differently that we think differently what's not said is you like women i like dick like there's just those things aren't articulated exactly but they're heavily implied there Mm -hmm. the differences between our preferences being how our brains work which means that if a machine's brain doesn't work the way a person's brain does that doesn't mean it doesn't have one that it's not thinking and that is that is the antithesis of that repeated line that is really, really nicely woven, layered writing that is the majority of this script and not the ham-fisted poster tagline writing that I really, really enjoy about it. And uh, because of that, and in spite of the lead pipe bits, I, I'm glad it won the the Oscar for the, for the screenplay.
2: And I think Cumberbatch probably should have won for Best Actor. He's almost certainly better than Eddie Redmayne. <laughs>
0: Oh, Jesus fucking Christ, I hated that movie so much.
2: Who won for playing Stephen Hawking, which is so much more problematic.
1: Who Cumberbatch had also played in an earlier film. Yes, he had. He played Stephen Hawking? Mm Mm-hmm. In what movie?
2: pre Stephen Hawking with disabilities. Uh, Oh, okay. Like, he played just...
1: A young Stephen Hawking.
2: Because I don't think his disability really started to affect him until mid to late 20s. Right. But Dan... What do you think?
1: Well, I'll be short because I think you guys covered a lot of it. The objective here, I think, because at times I was watching this going, okay, are they trying to make an Alan Turing biopic or are they trying to do a dramatization of the history of Station X, which prominently features Alan Turing as the main character? And of course, they're bringing up the LGBT issues. I think to really stick to our is it on target analogy, if you really picture a target over something, I haven't seen Enigma, but it sounds like Enigma is like not on the map. (laughs) Oh, it's terrible. Station X, I think is really close because it's very accurate. It's also a documentary, so it's kind of in a different category than what we're talking about here. I think Imitation Game here is getting closer. So I think this film is trying to right a wrong. Mostly, this is what happens when you have a pendulum swing sometimes, and this is what happens after decades and decades of government suppression of a specific group of people. Which until 1968, England had these anti gay laws or you know, LGBT suppression laws, whatever you want to call them. It's also one of the things that killed Oscar
2: Wilde. Ah, uh, yeah.
1: I feel like that's a pretty noble target to try and right a historical wrong and give give a historical figure some exposure and to the masses. Obviously, there have been plenty of books written about Turing, but in terms of like, you know, a Hollywood blockbuster or something that's going to win Oscars and a lot of people are going to put their butts in seats and go see, I think it's really noble that they tried to portray sort of the wrongs that were done to him by the government and the tragedy of the end of his life. Despite the fact that we're still not sure to this day whether it was a suicide or not. That being said, I kind of have a lenient view of this film for the sort of heavy-handed autism depiction that it leans on. The It's definitely going for the suicide theory, the gay tragedy depiction, the way Katie was talking about. And it kind of overshadows the contributions of the Polish team and everybody else that worked for Station X and embellishes Turing's contributions, especially the timing of it, right? Like, again, he's like making decisions about what convoys are going to get saved when in reality, again, he wasn't even working there at the time.
2: And I did want to bring up the fact that Turing also contributed a ton of other things to the war effort. Mm -hmm. He only had left Bletchley Park at the point he did because he was going to work on other even more difficult top secret things.
1: For sure. And so again, once you combine the medium that this is in, it's not theater, it's not a book, like we gotta do a two-hour film, things are getting condensed. Like I said, or like Liam said, they do a good job of not condensing characters too much. Most of the characters are real people. But in terms of the narrative and the way things play out, there are lots of things that are exaggerated or inaccurate or whatever. But again, if you look at this film in the history of filmmaking and in the history of how gay characters have been portrayed in the past versus how they're being portrayed now or certainly in the last 10, 20 years, I give this film a lot of credit for correction. They're getting closer to where they should be Like I said, subjectively, I could see a different writer and director team taking this pretty much the same exact story and making a different film out of it and making different decisions, maybe more subtle in parts where this one kind of hits you over the head or just, you know, uh, highlighting different things or writing the characters in different ways. And I would love to see that film. So I'll probably watch this one again, but 10 years from now, I would love to see a different iteration of this story and see how someone else can do it. So, I'm not necessarily criticizing the writing and directing team. I think they did a pretty good job. It just leaves a lot of room for a subjective adjustment if someone else were to take the helm. And so, I'd be very curious to see how someone else would do it. Did I like it? Yes, I did. But I think the answer to that question for me is more like, am I glad this film exists? And like, yes, definitely I'm glad this film exists. I think that benedict cumberbatch put it best himself who he was obviously very emotionally involved in this character and it was really important to him and he really wanted to portray it properly and he was quoted at the european premiere of the film at the london film festival in october 2014 this is what he said about that if any young person ever felt like they aren't quite sure who they are or aren't allowed to express themselves the way they'd like to express themselves. If they've ever felt bullied by what they feel is the normal majority or any kind of thing that makes them feel an outsider, then this is definitely a film for them because it's about a hero for them. I have to respect that intent. Again. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Right. What an (laughs) asshole.
2: Cumberbatch is such a sweetheart. He is. He's the best. So articulate. As a work of
1: art, we can have different opinions about whether it worked for us But for me, in terms of are they headed in the right direction with the depiction of people that have been historically wronged in this particular case, yes. And I give them a lot of credit for that. So I would recommend this film to people. I would watch it again. It's not going to be in my top 10. It's not like my favorite film, but I can give them a lot of credit for how they made it. And I'm looking forward to a film in the future that tells this story again, using different details and do it in a different way.
0: By the way, Dan... I was watching the the making of, and all of the cast were talking about how much they really resonated with the story and how they were glad they were making it. And it cuts to Charles Dance.
1: Oh, I forgot to mention Charles Dance. God, I fucking love him in everything he's in. He's so good.
2: <sighs> he's so, and he's so hateable in this. I loved that.
1: And he is, well, he's hateable in everything.
0: He always plays a hateable piece of shit. But in this- there's just this brief clip which is it's worth watching the making of documentary just to, the the behind the scenes just to see it where he's talking about like how terrible everything that happened to Alan Turing was. Mm. It's he didn't say anything groundbreaking it's all just like yeah we know but at the same time it's like oh that's Tywin Lannister. Yeah, I knew a bit about Alan Turing and who he was and And the fact that he cracked the Enigma code, the fact that he built the world's first computer. I didn't know that much about his rather tragic and shameful end, really. And I'm glad that um, we can tell people about that, because it's something that the state should be ashamed of. And I'm just like, Tywin, you mensch. (laughs) Good guy Tywin Lannister stands up for the gays. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, he's one of the best characters in Game of Thrones. He's also, he's also really good in Alien 3, like one of the best characters in that film.
0: Well, he's also, I think I first saw him in Gosford Park, and he was like a small part, but just like, ooh, but so Charles
2: good. Charles Dance is fantastic in everything he does. Mm-hmm. It, and, and he's,
0: Even if it's kind of always the same character, but like, I don't give a fuck.
2: Great character actor.
0: He's just such a good heavy.
1: What are we doing next?
2: Man, I don't know. Next time around, we're covering The War Below, which is a 2021 film by J.P. Watts, starring a bunch of people who you don't know.
0: You don't know who I know. I know lots of people. You'd be surprised.
2: I don't think you know any of these people. I'm just going to say it. I don't think you do. This is a film about a group of British miners who are recruited to tunnel underneath no man's land and set bombs from below the German front.
0: World War I? is what we're dealing with. Cool. Mm-hmm.
1: It is World War I, but from a perspective we haven't really seen or talked about before.
0: It's like a regular war film, but underneath it, it's from below.
1: Uh, we're looking for a new host on Danger Close. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there aren't a whole lot of reviews, so I guess we'll see how it is. All right,
1: well... Thanks everyone for joining us again on Danger Close. We are really glad to be here talking to you guys and we're glad that you are tuning in. If you want to join us on Facebook where you can talk about our discussions and interact with our other listeners there's some awesome memes going around that's at danger close podcast discussion group on facebook we also have a patreon that you can join if you want to hear our discussion on parasite and t1 t2 independence day lots of other fun things you can go to dangerclosepod.com forward slash support and look that up it's only four bucks a month and uh, you'll get a whole extra episode every month we'll see you guys on the next one
2: Bye!
1: Bye!